Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your hosts, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfit, are here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arucheva, Israel National News slash Radio. And, Phil, it happened. The big race that the Democrats were finally supposed to win, the Georgia 6th, the great hope, John Ossoff, was going to be the the person that was going to lead the Democratic Party into the majority in the House, starting now into 2018, $50 million spent on a single House race, $23 million spent by Democrats. And it wasn't quite, it wasn't even the nail biter that we thought. The actual, the closer race was actually in South Carolina on Tuesday. South Carolina had a closer race that wasn't, nobody was even paying attention to that to fill the seat of Nick Mulvaney. In South Carolina, which is an even more Republican district, the Democrats are unable to win. And maybe the symbolism is wrong. Maybe the message is wrong. But we talked about it last week. I mean, my feeling is the Democrats need a win. They need eventually to win something. You can't just keep having this energy that doesn't actually translate into anything politically. And it didn't happen. No, I, look, I absolutely disagree. You know, and I, I, and I disagree, by the way, with the the DCCC and sort of sinking and all the people who sunk all the millions of dollars because all that does is raise expectation and send a message out that Democrats are somewhat desperate for a win. Just like you opened the show, like Democrats need a win. Folks, the Democrats are going to get a win, right? When the midterms come up and there's dozens and dozens and every seat is up and there's dozens of contested races, I promise you a Democrat will win, right? I'm, uh, there's one thing I'm, well, I I'm sure of. I imagine some Democrats will uh, there's win. There's one thing I'm sure of. But we're talking of, about in the competitive races that they maybe... The Republicans are not going to pick up 435 seats. I can assure you that in the midterms. And so I'm quite certain we're going to get our Democrat That's win. what I love about you, setting the expectations so low that you're always going to exceed them. But he, That's this fantastic. Is, and this is the criticism I say. We, as Democrats, by the way, and the DCCC and the Washington machine set the expectation so high. Right, what was the reason for it? Why set the expectation so high? Why spend so much money? I'm not saying don't spend money and don't try to make the seat competitive, but but why set this expectation that if we win this and that's the first step towards redemption or coming back or whatever it is you want to call it, and if we lose now what? What's our message now? I mean, we really we we painted ourselves into a corner, a corner. And we didn't leave ourselves a back door, uh, and, and quite frankly, is the messaging is awful. And the and I don't think there's an explanation for it. I think we really, I think Democrats made a big mistake here by by putting so much on this one single special election. Well, they, when there's special elections going around the country, I mean, look, the truth is there's a whole bunch of dynamics here. A lot of the donations came in through the grassroots. They came in online. They came in small checks. It wasn't like there was huge money. In fact, many criticized the actual official campaign apparatus for not getting more involved in this race. Uh but a lot of people felt that that was. But the truth is, when it comes down to it, you gotta win, right? I mean, I, I understand we have this pol- we have this idea outside outside of politics, right? That you come close, it's a moral victory. You did good showing, but we both know, haven't been there. There's, it's a binary choice: you either win, you win or, you, or lose. you lose. And this is a loss. And as and it it can't. But it, it's actually also the message that it would have sent, I think, that this was a longtime Republican seat. It's been Republican for 50 years. And a loss of that seat in the special, highly anticipated, highly watched election, which actually, remember, there were two. There was this. This was the runoff where there was a possibility that Ossoff might get to 50 and then Avora, and he almost did. 
and he almost did. And then to come back and a couple weeks later after spending all this money and all this energy and all this and all the hype to kind of fall short. And there's no there's no message that's been sent. The only message that's been sent, actually, and uh, people are criticizing the president for taking a victory lap on this. He he can. <laughs> well, he sent he, out a tweet. He did tweet. He can support take, on the Tuesday before the election. He I mean, can take a victory lap here. I, and the truth is, I will say, Asaf did not do. If you watch the race close, closely, he did not make this about Trump. Strangely enough, he made it about a lot of other issues, but he didn't make it about Trump. I, I, I can't, I don't know the strategy. I don't know what, you know, but, I don't know the district. I don't know the numbers. I don't know the leanings. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, there was intensive polling done by both sides and, and both came up with the strategy. You know, I don't look, I said this, you know, about a couple of weeks after the presidential election, maybe it was a couple of months after the presidential, there was another special election somewhere. And I remember, and I was like, ooh, this is the bellwether. We're going to know now. If well, there was one in Kansas. This is the we, fifth one, if I recall. So but the Kansas one was very close. And then we had this body slamming one in Montana. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, the, and the, you know, the Democrats couldn't beat this guy who attacked a reporter the night before. And now there's the one in South Carolina also, which was in the same day as Georgia yesterday. So, so all, all five of them, I don't believe, are indicative of any which way things are going to play out in 2018 in the midterms and or the approval ratings. Because... You know, the approval ratings, one poll has approval ratings of 50%. The president won't let you forget it, right? But every other poll has us anywhere between 36 and 40%. That is the fact. And and, and when you bring up the other polls, it's funny because then I, 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 gosh, I have this conversation yesterday. When you bring up the other polls, they're like, well, they were wrong during the election. Like, as was this one, they were all wrong. And, and you can even make the debate, by the way, and I think we've talked about this, the polls weren't actually that wrong. Because when you look at the polls measure popular vote, they don't me measure electoral vote. And so the polls actually showed Hillary winning by a few points, and she actually did. But here is, I'm going to take us down a, a different path for a moment. My issue, you know, we could debate the, the Democrat, Republican, how much money was spent, whether this is a bellwether, whether, whether this has any indication on the Democrat, National Democratic Party, the National Republican Party. What is so fascinating to me is that Donald Trump supporters, and I'm talking to you, Elliot, right? Donald Trump supporters have embraced his defensive uh, tone and, and mocking attitude because I literally was walking uh, in the office yesterday and people were gloating. You should have seen the look on people's face. Like, ha did you see Georgia? I was like, when is the last time you followed a congressional race in Georgia? And I turned around. I was like, this is what you're excited about today? Like, where, what happened to the political, and, and I'm going to say this, what happened to the political discourse in this country that like, I got you, Phil, you see? It's, <laughs> it's, it's a... It's like... Everything we have gone through in the last year, our politics has really transformed entirely into a zero-sum game. Not, And I understand elections are a zero-sum game. One guy wins, loses. But politics themselves, the art of governing is not a zero-sum game. It's not... I'm going to win and you're going to lose. Th that's the point. It's always, it's always supposed to be about how can everybody win. Now, not everybody wins all the time. I know that's ridiculous to say. But we should have an idea that some people can also win and benefit from the things that are going on. But it's just I don't know what to say in the fact that people seem to have this idea, this feeling that – you have to make sure you beat the other guy, and then you have to stick it in his face. And you have to stick it. You have to stick it in his face, and you know that's what we're seeing in Washington now. And remember, and we'll get back to this: Republicans control the White House, they control the Senate, they control the House, and they are still not getting anything done. 
Nothing. Nothing of huge substance. No structural reform. No structural changes. None of the changes that I truly believe that Washington needs and that the country really needs are happening. And you want to say, oh, the president, the media, the this, that. Sorry. The truth is you have the ability to get stuff done. You're just not doing it. And there are a number, there are plethora of reasons as to why that's not happening, but it's not happening. I can tell you this. If uh, if Asaf would have won, right? If Asaf, I can assure you I would not have been gallivanting around my office or gallivanting in the streets and saying, ah, ha, ha, we won, we won, we won. I hate to say it, regardless of the turnout, it seems with this kind of attitude, we're all going to lose. Right. Because it's, it's That's so right. divisive. That's right. And so everybody is just sort of digging their heels in and, and, and accepting the fact that we rather fight than actually get something done. But let's talk about the Democrats for a second, because the rank and file, many of the rank and file, including our own or my own uh, hometown congresswoman here, Kathleen Rice, uh, New York 4, uh, she called on the entire House Democratic leadership to resign. She said, you need new blood, you need new ideas. Uh, and uh, Tim Ryan, I think, uh, of Ohio, who, uh, who actually ran against Ms. Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who was used very effectively by the Republicans against Ossoff in this race, once again has proved to be a lightning rod, the San Francisco classic San Francisco liberal. Um, she, as I think he said, his quote was, our brand is worse than Trump. And in a lot of ways, you kind of, if you're a Democrat and you're energized and you're trying to, you have the best foil in the world. I mean, President Trump has been, I think, great material, great fodder for Democrats to run against, and they haven't been able to do it. I understand the districts are not up, but this is a highly educated district, the most highly educated district in the in the South. I believe one of probably or the most highly educated. I think I read most highly educated re- district represented by a Republican in the country. And this is a district, this is a, potentially a swing district that they need to pick up if they're going to take the House in 2018. I'm not advocating that the Democrats are taking the House, but if you're the Democrats, you can't just, you, you've seen that the map doesn't allow you to just be a bi-coastal party and have nobody, no representation in the middle aside from big cities. And I give I give uh, Congresswoman Kathleen Rice a tremendous amount of credit. I mean, she, it's not just rhetoric from her. I mean, she has always been an independent voice. She was one, I think, of three Democrats who actually voted against Nancy Pelosi on the record, voted against, you know, even though everybody knew at that point, you know, Nancy Pelosi is going to win. But she said, you know what? I'm going to take a stand here. I'm going to send a message that, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result. And Nancy Pelosi, quite frankly, has not proven her ability to lead, to find ways to come together. And and I think it's in stark contrast to sort of what, what Senator Schumer is trying to do, whether he's successful or not successful. Is, but I think there's a, a an op, what he's trying to do is sort of put everybody together and find ways that, that we can, you know, work together, find ways that we can agree. We're not going to get everything we want. You're not going to get everything we want, but we're actually going to come up with a positive step forward for the entire country. And and I, I think it is just a shame that, and I, by the way, I don't blame just President Trump and I don't blame just the Republicans. I blame them all. I absolutely blame them all. And I think we all have a responsibility. As a former elected official, I think I had a responsibility to talk to the Republicans, to work with the Republicans, to to even though they were the minority party in my house, there was a lot of bills that we co-sponsored together, that we worked on together, that we thought over together, and that's the way it should work. Michael, I am just nothing changes. We have this we have this conversation nearly every week, and it's, every week it's on a different issue, it's a different race, it's a it's a different nuance. 
but it's essentially the same point. We're not getting to anywhere. It's like we're running on a treadmill. We're getting absolutely nowhere. And so for anybody, and I don't care if you're a President Trump supporter or if you're not, let's stop talking about all the great things that we've already done. Enough. Enough. Number one, I don't think we've actually accomplished so many I, I great don't, things. I, I don't even know what those are. Right. Number two is stop talking about it. Let's keep moving forward. And, and quite frankly, we're not doing that. And I don't see a future where we are. And look, the midterms are right around the corner. Um, I think I think Republicans around the country are going to feel it. I really do. I think it's still too soon. I think we are way too soon in the Trump presidency. And the, the midterms historically always go the other way of the sitting president. In terms oh, of, that is true. Right. And so historically, that's the way. And I think with this president, you're going to see that, um, you know, at, at a multiple. But, but, but let me ask you for a second. And just as a Democrat. And one, you know, run on the Democratic banner. I know you're a conservative Democrat, but the Democratic brand, okay? And, you know, New York, it's easy. It's a, it's a good brand. Queens, certainly, it's easy. It's dominant. When you get outside of those dominant areas, I mean, you're familiar with upstate New York. You have friends who've run as Democrats upstate, which is not as Democratic friendly. Is the brand a big problem right now? Is it is it too associated with, the city, is it too associated with big city problems? And because that's what it seems, even in suburban districts right now, it's swinging the other way. Whereas Obama was able to put together a Democratic coalition in the suburbs, which are critical to any any win nationally or even in the House, uh, that seems to be going the other way for the Democrats. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a brand problem. There's a messaging problem. You know, if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. So, like, where are we? You know, we need to cut away from this idea of just, you know, they're just wrench throwers. They're just trying to to, to put a, you know, sort of mess up and, and, and mess the gears of what the Republicans are trying to do. And so, yeah, I definitely think there's a branding problem. But I, I lean on this example and I leaned on it as, again, I was a Democrat running in a community, right? And it was an assembly, an assembly district that had probably the highest concentration of conservative voters in the entire state of New York. And so... It, it's not like I, you know, okay, those are not my voters. I'm going to ignore them. I work twice as hard. And I, you know, while this might not be a, a great example in terms of just, um, you know, sort of bringing up the name, but in 2004, when Chuck Schumer ran for his first reelection campaign, right, he won in 98 against Al D'Amato. He took out Al D'Amato, the incumbent. He ran for his reelection campaign in 2004. This is arguably the one where you go after him the hardest, right? You go after him the hardest because it's your first one. You can potentially get him. He won, there's 62 counties in the state of New York. He won 61 out of 62 counties. Now think about that. Do you remember who his opponent was? Okay, so mm. okay, case in point. But let's, uh, mm. but let's leave that aside. Now, now you got me curious. I, right, I, I don't think anybody knows who his opponent Michael, was. Michael, can you tell me the one county that he lost? <laughs> uh, Hamilton County. Hamilton County. Look at look at that population five thousand one hundred. I think it's eleven hundred actually. But is it that? Uh, is it? I don't. I bet there might be eleven hundred votes. But yes, it might I, be eleven hundred votes. Yeah, that actually could be five thousand residents. Uh, but the point that's the point, in the North Country, the, folks. The point. <laughs> the point I'm making is that. We're talking about like conservative co counties. I mean, we're talking about counties that are as conservative as any other state in the entire country who voted for arguably a very liberal Democrat. So how does that happen? Right. Well, Chuck Schumer doesn't cultivate an image as he is liberal and he is from Brooklyn and he is, but he doesn't cultivate that image. Uh, he tries to cultivate an image as a centrist. You could ar certainly argue that Nancy Pelosi does not. I mean, 
but you all you it doesn't also, seem like she even tries right but but we'll, we'll leave that aside I, i'm not asking you to defend the entire democratic party what i'm trying to say is where if you don't have a standard bearer you don't have a president you don't have a party leader right i mean tom paris clearly doesn't seem to be looking to be that party leader so you got bernie sanders you got this you got elizabeth warren you got different people all different jockeying for position how do you go into a battle in the midterms and without really standing for anything? And you have it, it, look, it, there, there is, there does seem to be a problem that the Democrats need to deal with. We don't have to deal with it on the no, show. But and, I, I, I will say, there's, I mean, you're going to see. I don't think we've actually seen it yet because I think it's just too soon. I think Democrats are afraid to sort of pull out the anti-Trump uh, message. Come the midterms, it's right? Be I, all I, anti-Trump but, but all the time. You're not going to be have to look very far to see it. Right. I don't I don't know why. I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly where, you know, who, who's making that strategy. But look, we'll see what happens. OK, we're going to we're going to have to switch gears for a second because I want to this is Michael Fragan's Phil Goldfeder here on Spin Class. And I want to get to a, bu- a bunch of other things. But oh, the one thing I actually we got to we do have to talk about as far as Trump. Trump goes to Iowa yesterday, goes to a rally and he's in, tr- he's in the middle of cornfields and I he says, ah, great to be out of Washington, et cetera. And then he starts talking about how rich his cabinet is. <laughs> He starts talking about Gary Cohn as a Wall Street genius. I only want wealthy members of my cabinet. A Wall Street genius. I don't want poor people in my cabinet. Um, Okay. I've got no comment. (laughs) I've got got nothing on that. I got nothing. I've got nothing. I I want to talk for a moment just to (laughs) shift gears. But I don't... I, I, I don't get it. I'm, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with wealthy people. There. And and I think Trump has actually done people a, a disservice. There's always... The other candidates have tried beforehand, very wealthy people have tried beforehand and, and not really known how to deal with their with their wealth, people with substantial wealth. And sometimes it's been a liability for them, being too wealthy. Trump has been unabashed in it, about it. He said, that's it. I'm at, I'm successful. And therefore, you want me to be... And I think it's actually been a very good message. It's been a very good message. It's worked very well for him. And it could work very well for others. But the problem is, you say things like this, it just seems to be like over the top. Michael, he's not a politician. You can't expect yeah, him to act like one, Michael. Stop okay. it, please. This is not please. The, we'll, we'll leave that aside. Go ahead. I, you know, I don't want to jump too far into this, but I want to talk about health care. I think we'd be yes, we definitely should. We, we definitely should. The, the secretive health care plan right, now so Michael, coming out of the right, Senate. Talk to me. Let's you know lay out, please, what, what the three or four points are that the Republicans <laughs> in the Senate want to Absolutely. Wanna secrecy, secrecy, and more secrecy. Let's not Michael, ta- stop. Come on. Now, come on. Clear, you obviously know what's in the plan. Let's like, not what, ta- what, what do they want to do? Come I, on, what's... I am in the Lisa Murkowski camp here. Lisa Murkowski, Senator of Alaska, said, I don't know. Can I say, you know, this was the best thing that I saw in the last couple of days. On Tuesday, I think it was MSNBC, who literally pulled the John uh, Boehner uh, floor speech from when did they do health care in 1999 or 2000. What am I saying? In... Um, no, 2011. 2011. 2011. Whatever, yeah. I think I'm thinking 1999. In 2011, when we passed... 2009. 2011. When we he talked about the, it. He both talked about it being John done in John Boehner got yeah. up on the floor of the House of Representatives. And by the way, if you haven't seen this speech, it was good. I give him credit. He didn't cry. He screamed a lot. And he gave an impassioned speech to the tune of... Uh, have, they, have they included... Has this been bipartisan... Have they included the public? Have we had hearings? This health care plan is going off the rails and it's being it's being done in a uh, in a cloud of secrecy. And they played that literally thinking to yourself like, huh, how interesting. <laughs> my, my how, how the, the more things change, the more they stay. Right? The same. It's like, wow, that's a John, a Republican <laughs> speech based on Democratic health care. Shocking, reform. shocking that that would happen. And, and playing it now is kind of like, huh. 
Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Phil, you finally exposed hypocrisy in politics. <laughs> I'm, we've had, we, you know, we might as well pack up now, just end the show because we have gotten, we have, we have figured it all out. By the way, so, I, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying this at the defense of like, oh, Democrats don't do the same thing. When you're caught, you're caught, right? I, look, there's a reason here. There's a reason that they're doing it in secret, that it's being drafted in secret, that it's not being released. Why it's not bipartisan? I mean, look, Washington is no longer a bipartisan town. It's sad. I mean, they've kind of gone away with Albany. Albany's not a bipartisan town. It's a, you know, it's uh, the. I mean, New York City is not a bipartisan town. There's a lot of places that are not bipartisan. I that's a, that overall is a problem. You know, I was on a I, I was on a show. Uh, I was on New York One this week, Wednesday night. I mean, Wednesday night, Monday night, and I said the you know the reason the low turnout in the mayoral election is a reason, great case for bipartisan for nonpartisan elections in cities, well, like a lot of cities have, but New York doesn't have it. And I was laughed at by the Democrats because of course, of course you're in favor of that. But the fact is that we want to push all the politics to the extreme, everything into the extreme. This is what you get. And this is what happens. And we no longer have any sense of bipartisanship to try. We had bipartisanship for a couple hours last week when, when somebody was shot. That we had bipartisanship. Okay, but, but let's. I want to talk about the the politics of this and and, and yeah, the real what, what is actually very quickly because we got to get to Albany. What's actually going to happen here, right? It took a couple of tries to get a bill out of the house, and it took a lot of arm twisting and a lot of compromising and a lot of promising and and it and on the first time it failed, and then the second time we actually got out of the house. The Senate now is coming up essentially with their own plan. I mean, I assume there's some parts of the House plan that are going into this. Let's remember, folks, we've got this is still has to go back to the House. So whatever the Senate comes up with and whatever process they determine is appropriate still has to get to the House. I'm not even concerned. And Michael, I'm not even concerned about the Democrats holding it up in the House. I'm concerned about the Freedom Caucus who actually caused it to fail in the House the first time. The Republicans, um, the Republicans who literally held up the health care bill in the House are now going to get a brand new bill. Without the ability Agreed. to to without to, make deals, to amend, to, to amend. correct, they're gonna have to pass what they get, take it or leave it. it. It's 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 a crazy mess. On the other hand, the Republicans have backed themselves into a corner that they have to get this done because they have to get something done, and this holds up to everything. And it's just you can't do tax reform without doing health care reform because they need the savings, quote unquote, from health care reform in order to do tax reform. It's look, folks. I mean, if you think Washington is it, it, that is why it was so important for Trump for this administration to go come out of the gate firing to come out of the gate quickly. But they still, as I talk about every week, they still don't have positions filled. They're still not doing nominations. They're still not getting stuff done. I, I, I you know, I think what do we have? One ambassador now, two ambassadors, three ambassadors total. But that's not even it. It's the undersecretaries of state and these middle level appointees. All right, Phil. The Albany session ended yesterday. And uh, it's almost as if, uh, you know, it didn't happen after the budget. There was the budget and then there was everything else and nothing else happened. Okay. And, uh, and you know, everybody's talking, about, oh, mayor will control the schools. That didn't happen. And, you know, the world hasn't come to an end. But we see, like, we see both sides just digging in their heels. The governor was absent pretty much. Uh, he didn't come to Albany until this week uh, and to negotiate. And there really just wasn't anything that happened. Uh, big, big ticket items for, you know, for, you know, our community, like the... Um, uh, the Child uh, uh, Safety Act, or uh, the well, I, obviously something that's not uh, that's not, that's controversial, but that didn't that didn't happen either. Um, you didn't have mayoral control of the schools. I mean, there was really big things that just didn't happen. This was, the, you know, it's funny. As far and most as people want government to act, I mean, that's kind of the theme here, and the government is just not acting. No, this is my first year out, and my five years in my five years, there's two. I was gonna 
cite that as the reason, but I wanted to let you do that. <laughs> well, I, what, I, what I was going to say is there's two points of legislative session where you see the big ticket items, right? Between between January and the beginning of March, you know, you sort of run through the bills and, and you're looking at various legislative priorities. But there's only two times where, like, you're looking at statewide priorities and, and coming up and, and the biggest plans. And that's sort of... In March, when you're in the heat of the budget and you're looking at the, the big ticket items, and that's in June, when you're coming up on end of session and you really want to find, you know, take all the ideas that were too big to just, you know, you know, um, to, to negotiate on the fly, but like have, have required months of negotiation and talking and drafting, and that's the end of June. And so normally in my five years, most, I don't know, you know, it's hard to put a number to it, but most of the biggest New York State advances and, and New York State collaborations and, and, and big legislation have come in March and in June. And so there's an expectation that like the big ideas, that's when they're coming. Outside of mayoral control, I don't think I saw anything. And, and I talked to colleagues um, who basically, you know, everybody said, yeah, we're still passing bills and there's still sort of local priorities and, and various things that we're working on. But in terms of like big ticket items, there just wasn't anything going on. There was no... You know, you just didn't see any any fighting. Everybody, I think, was kind of resigned to say, you know what, even, you know, the governor, Senator Flanagan, Assemblymember Speaker Hasty, they all kind of basically said, you know, it's not that important. Let's just walk away and, and sort of call it a day. And I look, I've been there. Trust me. I know what it means to sit day in, day out. You know, session's supposed to end at two o'clock and then you get to the night and then, OK, we're going to come back another day and you come back another day and come back another day. And things just go on and on and on. So I understand this idea of, all right, you know, we're not going to get to a deal here. Let's just sort of, let's sort of like, you know, put it away and we'll come back to it another time. But you have to remember what the people, what the perceive, what the perception, the perception is, that. is bad. It just doesn't, it just doesn't look good. And, and I hate to say this. I mean, everybody is sort of stands on, on their principles. Like, oh, well, we pass this and will we pass this? It's like... Look, I can't. I, I was there. I can't tell you that there's a secret sauce here and how to actually make it happen. But I think we owe it to, to the people we, are, we represent to try and make it happen. I mean, look, we remember back to the yeah. school board days, and I, I don't want to. No indication of Nassau County and school boards, but New York City, the school board days were nah, riddled with. I think everybody knows you need mayoral control, but but the you know the mayoral truth, control. But nobody it. wanted to do mayoral control without some kind of package. And, everybody uh, wanted something. Everybody wants something in return. The assembly wants something, and it also shows how bad the mayor's relationships are in in Albany. Terrible relationship with the governor, even worse relationship with the Senate, and not a particularly good relationship with the assembly. And it's uh, and he really couldn't get he couldn't get it done because the assembly wasn't do willing to do a straight bill either. So it's but I think the public perception is, of course, DC is dysfunctional, Albany is dysfunctional. Things just don't happen when they should. And uh, let's just talk local for a second because I want to bring to your attention or the audience's attention just some very troubling stuff that I saw about a. Village racing Great Neck, Village of Great Neck, which is now heavily Persian and tremendous anti-Persian sentiment. A guy literally who was running, who ran a writing campaign for office, wrote a letter to the Great Neck record. And I'm going to read it to you because it's so shocking here. Okay. Just to say, if the mayor of Great Neck and his running mates are reelected, the village will ultimately become the Long Island equivalent of Curious Joel, a village within the town of Monroe where the majority of its residents are Yiddish-speaking Hasidic Jews. Now, of course, Persians are not Hasidic. They don't speak Yiddish. And well, that can't happen here. And then, of course, the money line here is, we need a secular majority to assure our future before it's too late. Signed, David Zeeland Zeger. Okay. This is... I, 
I don't even know how to respond to to a guy who says this, but it's even worse that it get gets published in the local newspaper. That somebody's willing to publish this kind of drivel to say that somehow this guy is a legitimate point of view. Okay, if you elect this, the mayor is Persian. He did win again, but this is disgusting. In a democratic election, he democratically elected, you know, members, uh, you know, public officials, folks. It is that that's the way the system works. You know, gosh, and, and uh, Michael, you remember this. And, and I had debates on the assembly floor with colleagues of mine who literally thought that that Orthodox Jews or Hasidic, Hasidic Jews in, in Kiryas Joel and in, in East Ramapo were not eligible. To they vote should not be allowed to vote because they're too Jewish or because it's not fair that they have so many more people than me. Like, wait, wait, wait a second. It's not fair that they get more votes than you do, right? So should we abolish the entire electoral system? Like, like what does that mean? And so they should. Should be we suit a poll tax? Maybe a literacy test? Ooh, wait, wait, we did do that. We used to do that. It, it is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Number one, in today's day and age, that people are feeling. It's not look. People are going to feel bigoted in their heart, in their head, in their mind. That's fine because you're not going to change who people are. But they're so emboldened as to say it out loud, to write a letter, to publicly print it in the newspaper. I, you know, I, and I'm not sure if I've ever told you this story, but I remember being invited to a press conference. It was a, a pro-Israel press conference that was being done by Michael Miller and the JCRC. And the people who were chanting the counter-protest, which, by the way, is fine, counter-protest, the counter-protest, the, the, thing, the vile things that they were shouting about, like, we wish Hitler would have finished the job on the streets of New York City to be, like, so emboldened that I'm willing to just shout this from incredible. the rooftop. It is just absolutely incredible. We are headed, we are headed, so congratulations to Mayor Pedram Brawl of, uh, of Great Neck, uh, New York, who managed to, uh, in the face of this type of adversity, uh, get reelected two to one. And uh, our spin award of the week goes, I think, uh, far and away to Jay Sekulow, the attorney for the president, goes on all, goes on all the talk shows and says, the president is not under investigation. Let me be clear, the president, and, but you have a tweet that says, I am being investigated. (laughs) And he says, well, no, that's just social media. And that's just a tweet. The president is not under investigation. And I got to tell you, as I said, I admire the people who are willing to go out there and present that kind of spin because that is what we need. And that's why we have shows like this called Spin Class. See you next week on the Nachum Single Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks. 